we'll be looking at part of Genesis 11 and Genesis 12 um, a bit later in the sermon. Last Sunday, we began a new series on politics. Last week, we looked at the matter of Christians and politics, and we did so through the lens of ideologies and considered that in biblical terms, ideologies are modern manifestations of that ancient phenomenon known as idolatry. They are idolatries in a number of ways, but what I think we need to recognize is that ideologies tell a counterfeit story. It's a counterfeit narrative. It seeks to imitate better, to replace the redemptive story we find in Scripture. God presents himself, he reveals himself in scripture in creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Ideologies present themselves in, as redemptive by nature. See, each ideology is based on, a, a, I would call it a doctrine of salvation. It's a worked out theory promising deliverance, that there's some great evil that has happened in the past, either an event or a person or an institution, and this ideology promises redemption, that it will in fact cure you, it will redeem you from this terrible evil. If salvation is always from something deemed evil, then the question is, who gets to decide what is evil? Well, ideologies are the ones who define. They're the ones who point to specific things and see them as evil. And then they set themselves up as the opposite. That is evil. We are good. We will rescue you. We will, we will redeem you from that. If, in fact, a particular ideology brings salvation, then what? Well, then you have a perfect world, a paradise, a utopia, or, as I mentioned last week, the end of history, to use the title of Francis Fukuyama's book. My concern is that most people fail to recognize the narrative nature of ideologies, because ideologies are usually seen as theories, as a system of ideas or principles, ideals, not a story. I mean, stories for kids. But in fact, they are telling a story. But that's part of their seduction, if you wish. That's part of their deception. One more thing, just by way of review. The followers of an ideology tell a redemptive story. And it all points to an end state. You know, we're all headed toward this particular place, this utopia. We will bring this about through heroic human efforts. But what we find is that to get to that point, we may in fact have to crack a few heads. We may in fact have to be, well, in order to have a just society, we may in fact have to practice injustice now. In other words, the ends justifies the means. Uh, well, the problem with that is that we don't know what the ends will be. It's what you, you might think, well, that's what we want to happen. Well, yeah, that might be what you want to happen, but in fact, it may not be what happens. And so the goal, the end of the ideology becomes a god, an idol in itself, to which people have to be sacrificed. We have to kill a bunch of people to get to this wonderful place we call utopia. I would argue that if you want a just society, in the words of Micah the prophet, then you must act justly now and love mercy now 
and walk humbly with your God now, not in some imagined future time. If one might try to summarize last week's sermon, the point might be seen as, how am I as a Christian to participate in the political system? And given the place and time where we are right now, one might think, how am I to vote? As I said at the end of the sermon last week, the issue is not what is the right ideology or what is the best ideology. When we are confronted with ideologies, we can't simply sweep them away. We must assume that there is something good in them. They're part of creation. We'll look at that, the Lord willing, in two weeks. Um, But there is something good in them. But where they go wrong is when that good they have or something in them, they elevate it beyond its place and it becomes an idol, it becomes a god. I think it is the good in an ideology, a fragment or fragments of truth, that lure and seduce the followers of Jesus into going down the wrong path. You must ask yourself, how could an entire nation of professing Christians in Germany embrace National Socialism? Well, there were aspects, in fact, that had a bit of truth in it, and people followed that. They were seduced by it. As followers of Jesus, we need to remember who we are and to whom we belong. Today, I want to consider a different aspect of Christians and politics, or of the Christian and politics. And I want to try to look at the question, what is the right kind of government? What kind of government is the right kind of government at least according to scripture. We might put it another way, what does the Bible say about government? Well, to begin to answer that question, we will look at Genesis chapter 11. This is after the flood. The earth began to be repopulated again, and we have the story here of Babel. That it isn't a significant event, well, I think should be obvious, but you know, ten times in the book of Genesis, we find the phrase, this is the account of. Okay? So, with regard to creation in chapter 2, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So, that's the first one. So, you have ten of these. Three of them are around Babel. One before and two immediately after. And then we have the story of Abraham. So, The story of Babel is, I think, a very central uh, event, something worth looking at. By the way, if you're taking notes, chapter 10, verse 1, and then chapter 11, um, verse 10, and 11, verse 27. Three times, this is the account of. The story of Babel is found in the first eight verses of chapter 11. Follow along, if you would, as I read. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. 
But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the, all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. Verse 9, that is why it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. I would point out something that I don't know that I had not noticed this before, but as the people settled in a particular place, this in, in the east, a place called Shinar, they said, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And so their first thought is not political. Their first thought is, if you miss, almost creational, manufacturing. Instead of using stone, which comes from the earth, and you have to shape it, obviously, but they're going to make building blocks. They're going to make bricks. Not a bad thing. It is, one might say, progress. Okay? But then if you look at the next verse, then they said, come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. And it is here that idolatry enters the scene. By the way, the story of Babel consists of a, a series of counterfeits, of double counterfeits. First, as we saw last Sunday, humanity was called to live out God's image in two directions. Dominion, that's downward, they were to have dominion over the earth, over creation. And then upward, they were to trust God. They're not owners of the earth, they're stewards. We are stewards. And they look up to God in trust. Okay? But Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and now the picture changed. We still have the image of God, but now we are messed up, we are twisted, we are bent, and we live in a fallen and broken world. So instead of dominion, we find domination. We will be in control. Having turned away from a God who is gracious and who offers reconciliation, people now try to pursue something that will allow them to be the boss to be their own God, to be a law to themselves, and to be secure. Um, they dominate because they want some form of security. And instead of trust, we find overdependence. No longer trusting in God, they will trust in almost anything, including a tower, as we see in this story. Again, it is seeking security, not through control, that's domination, as much as trying to find a purpose, a sense of coherence in life. And this is what we find in Babel. Domination, I would argue, is in fact seen in the tower. Um, Overdependence, um, let's build a city so we won't be scattered. You know, if we're scattered, we're easy pickings. Let's stay together and let's have some security. But there's more. There's a double project. They want to build a city. I would argue that's the nearby idol. You may remember from last Sunday. It is the eminent idol, if you wish. The tower is the faraway idol. That is something that will reach beyond them, something that will transcend them. This may seem like a stretch, and if you see it as such, I'll, I'll accept that. But I do see the city as representing eminence, the here and now and the tower representing transcendence reaching to the heavens. And then there is redemption and eschatology. 
The people of Shinar wanted to be like God so that we may make a name for ourselves. We need to back up here for a bit because when we hear this today, we think of someone who wants to get their picture in the papers on the cover of a magazine or on YouTube or something, you know, somehow they will make a name for themselves. There aren't a lot of people on the planet at this point. So who are they making a name for themselves? What they want is to be immortal, that they will be remembered. That's what they want. And they want to stop time and history, as in the end of history. God had created them for a specific purpose. Let me read to you from Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, this is what he tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. People of Babel don't want this. They don't want to be scattered. They want to be in one place to be secure, to be immortal, and time will stop. This is it. This the end of history, we have reached utopia. The city and the tower would be their salvation, but the, we are told the Lord would not allow this to happen. He confused their language and he scattered them over all the earth. Immediately after this, we have the story of Abram. Later on, he will be known as Abraham. But this comes right after the story of Babel, in which God calls this 75-year-old man with his 65-year-old wife, have no children, and God says, I'm going to make a nation of you. You will be my people. If you look at Genesis 12, verses 1, 2, and 3, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In the story of Israel, we are given not a progression, but various stages, different ways of political structure. It begins with the patriarchs, with Abraham, Isaac, continued with Isaac. And by the way, Abraham had other sons. If you look in Genesis 25, um, before Abraham died, he left everything he owned to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. He had other sons. Okay. But it is Abraham, Isaac, and then it is Jacob. It should have been Esau the older of the twins, but it is Jacob. Isaac gave the blessing to Jacob, even though he was deceived, and Jacob received the blessing. Jacob had 12 sons, and before his death, he prophesied and pronounced blessings on them. I would argue that in the beginning, we don't have a political system. What we have is a clan, and we have the patriarchs. We have the head, who is Abraham, and then it is Isaac, and then it is Jacob. And by the way, 
Patriarchy is now a bad word, it seems, in our society at this point in time. But I would remind you that this is how God identifies himself and reveals himself to Moses. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus told the Sadducees when they questioned him about the resurrection, about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Well, Jacob's sons go down into uh, Egypt because of the famine. They end up staying there for over four centuries. They become enslaved by the Egyptians. God sends Moses a deliverer and they are set free. They are redeemed out of slavery. Moses is the leader. But lest we think this is some form of a dictatorship, the one-man rule, in Deuteronomy, 11, uh, Deuteronomy 1, at that time I said to you, Moses is reminding them of what happened earlier, you are too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. The Lord your God has increased your number so that today you are as many as the stars in the sky. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousand times and bless you as he has promised. But how can I bear your problems and your burdens and your disputes all by myself? Choose some wise, understanding, and respected men from each of your tribes, and I will set them over you. You answered me, what you propose is good. So I took the leading men of your tribes, wise and respected men, and appointed them to have authority over you as commanders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and as tribal officials. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the disputes between your brothers and judge fairly, whether the case is between your brother Israelites or between one of them and an alien. Do not show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of any man, for judgment belongs to God. Bring me any case too hard for you, and I will hear it. And at that time, I told you everything you were to do. I would point out to you that here you have Moses. He's the deliverer. He brings him out of Egypt. But there are over 600,000 Israelites at this point. It's too much for one man. So he tells them, you guys pick wise and respected men um, and who can be leaders at the local level. Moses did not choose them. We are told that he appointed them to have authority, but they were chosen by the people. The people chose him and said, this is a good man. This is someone who should be in charge. Upon his death, Joshua becomes the leader, but the same system continued. And when they reach the promised land, the land is divided up among the 12 tribes. The system continues with variations. And what we find is that the various tribes have different names for these people who have authority. Judges, princes, governors, leaders. In Judges 5, Deborah... We have the song of Deborah in celebrating victory says, when the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. So the, we have princes. Now, we tend to think of princes as being the sons of king. Not necessarily. It is someone who is seen as perhaps being nobility, but someone who is in a position of authority. In, uh, again, still in Judges 5, verse 9, my heart is with Israel's princes. find it interesting that King James uses the word governors and the ESV has commanders. 
So we have different titles for these people at the local level. It's a very decentralized form of government. Okay? And then comes the monarchy. Israel wants to be like everybody else. Everybody else has a king. They want a king. And in doing so, by the way, they reject God's authority. He is their king, but they want a human king, someone they can see. So you think, okay, king, dictatorship, oriental despot, off with your head. He has ultimate authority. But in fact, that's not the case. You still have local leadership. And in 1 Chronicles, um, in which we're giving a list, it's genealogies, but also positions within the various tribes. We have heads of families, leaders of their clans, choice men, brave warriors, outstanding leaders, princes, officers, judges. So you have all of these different positions, depending on the tribe. Um, So Asher had people known as princes. The other tribes didn't necessarily. Judah did, but not necessarily the others. But because of their idolatry, uh, the 12 tribes, first of all, the 10 tribes to the north go into exile, and then the two tribes to the south. As the Messiah will come through Judah, one of the two tribes to the south. That is the story that the Old Testament follows. The ten, quote-unquote, lost tribes go into exile in Assyria, and then about 100 years later, the two tribes to the south. Well, you might wonder what kind of government does Israel have if, in fact, they are in exile. But what we find is that different people, different individuals from Judah, rise to prominent positions within these foreign governments, these governments that had taken them into exile. And in doing so, by the way, they follow the pattern, the model, the paradigm of Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob? His brothers sell him to slavery. He ends up in prison, but then he ends up being second to the Pharaoh. Um, Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Joseph's number two in the kingdom. Almost a thousand years later, three figures stand out during the exile. The first is Daniel. In Daniel 6, it pleased Darius, this is after the Babylonians had been defeated by the Medes and the Persians, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. Again, you have, you have a king at the top, but you have local leadership with three administrators over them. So you've got a king, three guys, and then 120 governors, if you wish. One of them, one of whom was Daniel. Now, Daniel was so distinguished, or he so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. It's like Joseph again, king or Pharaoh, and then Joseph, now it will be Daniel. Then we have the story of Mordecai and the story of Esther. He is her, referred to as an uncle, but sort of a second cousin. And at the end of the book of Esther, we read, Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes. Again, you have king, and then you have one of God's people, Joseph, Daniel, now Mordecai. The third figure is Nehemiah, who was cupbearer to the king. 
Um, that doesn't mean a lot to us, but in the ancient world, the person who gave the cup to the king was not necessarily second in power, but someone who was very, very close to the king. For one thing, it was to make sure that the king didn't drink poison, but he was always there, oftentimes taken into the king's confidence, became an advisor. You might be saying at this point, Damon, what are you trying to say to us? I would suggest to you that there is no form of government that God favors over others. This might seem a bit disappointing as we have some pretty strong opinions about political systems and structures. As Ben pointed out in a sermon years ago, Americans really don't like monarchies. And when we hear about God being our king, it just sort of rubs us the wrong way because we don't want kings or queens. We fought to gain independence from England and her king. And then there's the famous quote from Winston Churchill. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all other forms that have been tried from time to time. So, well, we like to think that democracy is the best. Winston Churchill said that. It's what we are. And to find, or for me to suggest to you, that God does not really favor one over others might be a bit disappointing. I would submit to you that there is a standard by which God judges a political system. We find it in our text in Genesis 12. We find it illustrated throughout Scripture. And what is that standard by which God judges the rightness or the righteousness of a political system? It's how that system treats the people of God. We hear this when God called Abram. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Consider the following illustrations. Bear with me here. You might, again, think, Damon, you're stretching a bit, but bear with me. We have stories of those who treated God's people well. Nebuchadnezzar. You might say, well, that seems like a strange choice. After all, he destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, took Judah and Benjamin into exile. But at least three times in the book of Jeremiah, he is referred to as my servant by God. Okay. I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. That's Jeremiah 25. In Jeremiah 27, now I will hand, over, hand all your countries over to my servant Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And then in chapter 43, we find the same. I will send for my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. You could say, well, wait, he's called the servant of God because he's doing God's purposes. It isn't because he treats the people of God well. In fact, one could argue that he didn't. But when you read the book of Daniel, you find a change. You find a change in this pagan ruler who comes to acknowledge the God of heaven. A better example might be Cyrus, who was several kings later. Um, after the Babylonian Empire fell, they were re replaced by the Medes and the Persians, and Cyrus was a Persian. It is fascinating to me that in the book of Isaiah, about 150 years before Cyrus shows up on the scene, prophecies are made, naming him specifically. Isaiah 44:28, who says of Cyrus, 
He is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. The, the chapter divisions in scripture are artificial. That's not the way it was written. So the very next verse, which is Isaiah 45, verse 1, continues this thought. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. He's referred to as a shepherd, the shepherd that God is sending for his people, and the anointed. Think a minute, Messiah, which is in Greek, the Christ, means the anointed one. So Cyrus is seen here almost as a messianic figure. These words were fulfilled about a century and a half later in 2 Chronicles 36. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. The very next verses, because that's the end of Second Chronicles. The next book is Ezra. Okay, And the very next verse, chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what the, uh, Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Anyone among you, any, any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold and goods and livestock and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Again, someone might say, Damon, this is a stretch. They're fulfilling God's purposes. The fact that they are nice to God's people is, might be seen as secondary. Um, but there's a very strong contrast. Those are the positive. What about the negative? The negative are those who persecute those who devour the people of God, and they are called beasts. In the book of Daniel, he records a series of visions, visions of empires. And among the things we read, this is, he writes, as I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. So this one particular king, this one particular empire kingdom is fighting against God's people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will rise 
will arise different from the earlier ones, he will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. And then in Daniel 11, his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. So we have those who, in fact, are gracious and that are kind toward God's people, and we have those who devour them, who will drink their blood, who will eat their flesh, who will try to destroy them, and they are referred to as beasts. These are the two sides of the promise made to Abram. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. So I would argue that the form of government is not the primary concern, meaning I would say there's not one right form of government. Joseph and the others worked high in a government in which the Pharaoh was considered to be divine. Pharaoh was considered a god. And yet Joseph worked within his structure. One might think this is incompatible with being a faithful child of God, but it was not. See, the issue is, how did they treat the people of God? One author has noted, the Bible condemns violence, but bloodthirsty injustice is not in itself enough to make an empire a beast. One could argue that all empires have blood on their hands, okay? Empires turned bestial when they began to eat the people of God and drink their blood. This is what makes a form of government wrong. And it's not the form, it's the acts of that government that God condemns. Without questions, there are moral standards by which all governments are to be judged. If you doubt this, read the first chapter of Amos. Okay? It becomes quite clear. But what transforms a political system from being a country, a nation, a kingdom, even an empire, into a beast is how they treat the people of God. We live in the United States of America, and it's a new type of political community, relatively new in human history. It's one that many Americans think that the world should imitate or emulate. It's the right form of government. I have in my notes, but it was in the back of my head. Can someone say idolatry? (laughs) This is the only way. This is the best way. This is the form of government that God wants. Okay, this is beyond the scope of what I'm looking at. The question we need to ask is, is the United States a government that treats the people of God well? We pride ourselves on freedom of religion. Um, Surely persecution of the people of God would never happen here. Again, this is a bit beyond our topic today, but I will say two things. I believe that there is such a thing as soft persecution. I'm taking this from Rod Dreyer's soft totalitarianism, but soft persecution, which may or may not lead to violent persecution. In a now famous quote in 2010, the Archbishop of Chicago, um, he was saying basically he he thought that religious freedoms in the United States and other countries were endangered. He said, 
I expect to die in bed. My successor will die in prison, and his successor will die a martyr in the public square. In other words, soft persecution can in fact lead to hard persecution, violent persecution. But that's not the end of the story, by the way. Archbishop George went on to say, his successor will pick up the shards of a ruined society and slowly help rebuild civilization as the church has done so often in human history. It's not the end of history, okay? In 2018, Rod Dreyer published a book, The Benedict Option, A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation, in which he calls on Christians to prepare for a coming dark age. Um, that we are to embrace a Christian way of life and in a sense almost be like Benedictine monks, sort of retreat from society. Um, some people have pushed back and said, we're not there yet. But during this pandemic, various you know, people have argued that various government policies have bordered on persecution. <laughs> I would say if this is persecution, we have it really good. Okay. But the question we need to ask is, how does the government treat the people of God? The second thing that I would say to you, though, is while we are not experiencing real persecution in this country, meaning that the people of God are treated well, our government, in fact, does support other governments that persecute our brothers and sisters. Our foreign policy promotes religious freedom but we in fact give money to those who don't believe in religious freedom and kill our brothers and sisters for their faith. We need to recognize this for what it is. It is bestial. It is what the scripture calls beast. Read the book of Revelation. A question may come up, coming toward the end of the sermon here, why is the form of government not spelled out? Isn't there like one right one good form of government. I'll say two things. In truth, I don't know. Uh, I will say that God does not treat people or families or communities with a one-size-fits-all pattern. Okay? We do that. So since what we do in this country has worked so well for us, we imagine, we think other countries should be just like us. And we fail to take into account people's cultures, people's histories, people's behaviors, their, the way they live. I think God treats us more humanly than we treat each other. We're looking for this one perfect form of government that everybody on the planet should follow. I just don't think it's there. I don't think that's what God wants. I really don't. But the second thing I would tell you is we should never lose sight of this basic truth. The Lord reigns. God is king. And he stands against all forms of idolatry, whether ideological or political. He is the Lord God Almighty. This is his world, his planet. We are stewards, okay? And we, if you could imagine, each of us is given a plot of ground and told to do with, you know, do with it what we wish, and we might plant different crops, do different things. God does not expect us all to be the same. But he does expect that we would acknowledge that he is king. This is his world. David wrote in a psalm, Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad. 
Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. We hear this in a number of psalms, usually in the first verse of that psalm. Psalm 93, the Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and is armed with strength. The world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. Your throne, speaking of God's throne, was established long ago. You are from all eternity. Psalm 97, the Lord reigns, let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. And then we have that wonderful verse, a wonderful verse in Isaiah 52 that we know the first part of, but somehow we conveniently drop off the end. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation. Yeah, we like this. Read the rest of the verse. Who say to Zion, your God reigns. God is king. This is his world. This means that all political authority is under God's authority. They may not acknowledge that fact. They may not act accordingly, but it is still the truth. Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 13, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. If you know anything about the Roman Empire, this is sort of a shocking statement. In this country, we would like to believe that we start out as a Christian nation and that we are God's people, but the Romans? God reigns. The Lord reigns. This is his world. The issue is, how do they treat the people of God? We began today with the story of a city, Babel, a city built as part of a double idolatry. The Bible closes the story of another city. In Revelation 21, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and, the God, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The Lord willing, this is where we will continue our study next week. But let's never forget that the Lord reigns. During this, dare I say, rabid election cycle, this political shenanigans that are going on, we should remember what the psalmist wrote. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. If the Lord Jesus does not return, there will be a time in which the United States of America will probably cease to exist. Think of all the nations, the kingdoms that have come and gone in human history. God is king. Let us not let, let, us not let pol politics and political structures become an idol for us. 
thinking like the people of Babel. Let's make a name for ourselves so we won't be scattered. We're going to stick together. This will be the end of history. We will have reached paradise. As I said to you earlier, and I did at the end of the sermon last week, as followers of Jesus, we need to remember who we are and to whom we belong. We belong to Jesus first and last. And the church, not the government, the church is the body of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a time, very specifically, in which politics seems to dominate everything. It's everywhere we turn. There may come a time in our thinking where we we wonder what, what is the best form of government? What we have now has been working, but just seems so chaotic right now. Help us to remember who we are and that you are king. This is your world. We are your children. In your grace, you have been able to work through monarchies, democracies, one-man rule, authoritarian states, decentralized, centralized, all forms of government. You're still here. You're still king. May we not forget that. May we not lose heart, but may we not be over, overly dependent, putting our hope, our trust, our confidence in a political party or a political figure or a political system. As you told Abram millennia ago, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Spirit, we ask that you would give us understanding. Help us to cleanse our hearts and minds of idols, of things other than you in which we put our trust and to be reminded of who we are and who we are called to be. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you. May your spirit and your grace be with us in the coming week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.